0: Hello, and welcome
1: to Status Hour. My name is Noda Erekat, and with me on the line is Christian Davis Bailey, who is a great friend, a comrade, and uh, a wonderful human being. Uh, Christian is a writer and organizer based in Detroit. He is a co-founder of Black for Palestine and co-author of the 2015 Black Solidarity with Palestine statement. His work has taken him to Palestine, Lebanon, Jordan, and South Africa. Christian graduated from the Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity program at Stanford University. And for the last two years, he's been a research fellow with the Arab Studies Institute in its Black Palestinian Transnational Solidarities project. Welcome, Christian. Thank you, Laura Christian, there is what you know many have termed a renewal of black Palestinian uh, solidarity, referring to a current moment and a resurgence of a transnational solidarity that had Existed in an earlier time during the global revolt um, in in the context of third worldism, specifically between the late '60s and the early or the early 1990s. Uh, part of this current renewal is what was forged organically on the ground uh, in the summer 2014 between Palestinian organizers and Black organizers in the United States, and much of this work has been pushed, has been developed, has been um, fleshed out as a result of a few key organizers globally and you being um, central to that effort. Part of your work is um, an initiative that you started in the United States called Black for Palestine. I'd love if you can tell us a little bit more about that.
0: Sure. So as you mentioned, Black for Palestine um, was born out of that moment in 2014 when the Israeli assault on Gaza and the uprising in Ferguson just re-sparked um, conversations about solidarity um, in our imaginations here and in, in Palestine. And so Black for Palestine emerged out of um, a solidarity statement that uh, I coordinated with Corey Peterson-Smith, in which a thousand Black activists, artists, scholars and students just reiterated our our commitment to the Palestinian struggle and some of the similarities that we see between their experiences of apartheid and our own historical experiences of apartheid. Um, That statement was signed by people like Angela Davis, Mumia Abu-Jamal, Cornel West, and actually about a dozen political prisoners, including Mumia Abu-Jamal. But launching that statement on the one-year anniversary of the um, Ferguson uprising, We got a lot of interest from people saying, like, wow, I really support this. Um, How can I get involved or how can I contribute? And so from that, um, we started to form Black for Palestine as a small and loose network um, of different organizers around the country who um, do work for for Palestine at the same time as they work for liberation for our people locally.
1: You said that you would say that... um one of the things that motivated the statement was a shared experience of apartheid. Um, obviously, that's something that um, has been pushed back in Palestine, although we do know that ASQA, UN ESQA has supported that analysis. There's a number of, 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 of well-documented legal analyses making the case, and political as well. It's not often used to describe the experience of American blacks, so can you expound a little bit on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, the apartheid conversation, I think it's distracting a lot of the time, both from the Zionist end and even from within the Solidarity Movement, where people say, hey, well, what's happening in Palestine isn't what happened in South Africa, which um, isn't the point we're trying to make. We could go into like what the legal definitions of apartheid are, which um, I think applies to South Africa, Palestine, and the U.S., I'll limit it in just saying that um, all three of these places um, are settler colonial regimes that have enacted systems of racial, legal and informal racial discrimination against um, different populations. And because of those histories, um, which aren't just in the past, they're ongoing in all three of these locations, we've seen it as very important to align with each other and to Um, just raise each other's struggles as as we fight for our own.
1: And so what does that look like in terms of you making these connections across the African continent, in the Middle East, in the United States, again doing that work and that transnationalist kind of framing um, does have historical legacies. What does it look like in the U.S. for you uh, to to rekindle and nurture this initiative?
0: Yeah, I mean, so that's the larger point of this work, is that um, it's not specific to the black struggle on this occupied territory. And it's not specific to Palestine. Um, it's part of a broader history of like internationalism and joint struggle, specifically between Africa, Asia, and Latin America, the Middle East being in Asia, or on the border of the two. And it's, it's through the framework of anti-colonialism. I think, I don't know, there's any number of examples we can point to. Um,
1: well, let me but, put it another way. So yeah, how yeah. how have you found the reception to that, right? In, in the U.S. in 2014, when there isn't a similar global context that makes those connections for us, visibly, mm-hmm. um, you know, and obviously for us, a, a completely... You know, different historical moments, so what is mm-hmm. the re- reception amongst black communities in the United States in your experience of trying to you know really develop um, an an internationalist approach and in doing that work on a grassroots basis?
0: Yeah, I mean, so th- that is the challenge that um, there are very few active anti-colonial struggles that people can point to today. Um, And so the consciousness that was there a few decades ago is a lot harder to build. What I found is that, like, summer of 2014 was a a huge moment in kind of reawakening people's consciousness. Like, I remember being, um, I went to, or was invited to Ferguson um, for the National Weekend of Resistance um, two months after the uprising. And right in front of the police station in Ferguson was this black guy from St. Louis, in one hand holding the Pan-African flag, and in the other hand holding a Palestinian flag um, with uh, Al-Quds, um, I'm sorry, Alexa Mosque um, in the in the center of it. And during that night and that weekend, whenever somebody said, um, oh, I'm Palestinian, or um, I'm in solidarity with you all, there was like massive excitement and reception to that, which I think speaks to um, broader experiences. But for the most part, like once people are given some of the pieces of information, they begin to make those connections. And specifically here in Detroit, um, which is the largest black city in the country and which many of us here view as an internal colony, Um that that connection is is much easier to make for people who feel like we're living under occupation ourselves. There is pushback in in terms of the ways in which um, anti-black racism operates um, within Arab communities here, and it varies depending on who you talk to, but within the activist community um, and communities around us, um, the conversation's been growing in a nice way the last few years.
1: Um, So, I there's obviously a lot of questions about those conversations, but there's another dimension of the work and 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 really the unique nature of your work, Christian, not only in nurturing uh, an internationalist approach to questions of black freedom and Palestinian freedom, and as you said, you know a, a a global framework of freedoms for all people, but is you know the geographic scope of your work is also unique in that. You were responsible for one of the first delegations of Palestinians from Palestine to the United States, Mm -hmm. which breaks a bit with the mold of uh, delegations, which are mostly delegations from the U.S. to Palestine. Can you tell us about that delegation, how it came about, and and where you decided that they should visit first?
0: Sure. So in 2014, um, I was part of National Students for Justice in Palestine. And we had the opportunity to bring 10 students from Birzeit University um, in Palestine to the United States for um, what we called the Right to Education Tour. And so they came, to, uh, they came here to discuss how the occupation impacts um, Palestinians' ability to get an education. But we also used that trip as an opportunity for them to meet with and learn about um, our own social movements and struggles here. And so, um, when was the tour? The tour was in November of 2014, in yeah, November 2014, and um, as a result of being in St. Louis the month before um, for the National Convergence and seeing the level of and strength of support from Palestinians in St. Louis towards the um, uprising and struggle in Ferguson, I decided that St. Louis would be a perfect place to start the tour. Um, and for us to have an orientation, both to give the students um, just a sense of what their most immediate struggles um, in the country have looked like, um, but for also for them to see what um, being Palestinian in solidarity with other struggles looks like. And so that weekend, um, it was only two days in St. Louis before the students split up to different parts mm-hmm. of the country. But on their first day in the country, um, it was the one month it made, was the one month marker since the police had murdered an eighteen year old named von Derrick Myers. And so we had the opportunity to participate in um a march and a, a community vigil for von Derrick. Yeah, I don't have the 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 words to describe how powerful that experience was both for the Palestinians and for the black activists that we introduced them to, but in a nutshell, um, on the one hand, the students said that for the first time, listening to Vandera's parents and community members talk about the pain they were experiencing, they realized that they weren't the only ones who were suffering in the world, and they definitely weren't the group of people that suffering the most in the world. They started to see struggles as being on the same page. And then when we told some of the... Um, organizers, hey, there's this group from Palestine that's here in solidarity. They're like, wow, you guys came all the way from Palestine, and um, it was just this, this again, this big moment of excitement that people enduring this very intense struggle that we saw for 50 days um, on TV would then be in solidarity with, 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 with us and, and our own struggle here, and um, so that, so that was a, a very Big moment for everyone, but um, I just want to name that the students then went back to Palestine after the two-week tour ended, and held a lecture at Birzeit on um, how racism operates, and put up memorials of different Black revolutionaries around the Rights Education Office on campus, and held a silent um, protest in solidarity with. Um, black victims of police violence and so um, it was this moment that, that, that sparked a lot of um, important solidarity work and in the direction that we're, we're not used to to seeing it.
1: And interestingly within a year uh, I was part of an effort where we invited you to come to Palestine and that group of students was so eager to see you and was waiting for you at Birzit <laughs> and unfortunately you didn't show up. What, can you tell us about that experience, which was you know, also emblematic of a number of these various frameworks um, on anti-Blackness, on uh, Black transnationalism, Black Palestinian solidarity?
0: Sure. And first, what I remember hearing of that period is that one of the students decided that I was partying in Amman and decided <laughs> not to join. um, People may or
1: may not have believed that story, that (laughs) you, Christian, had partied so hard in Amman the night before you didn't make it across. They just said, is
0: this true? (laughs) Yeah, I wish that was the case. Um, What actually happened is that the um, Israelis decided I was smuggling ISIS-affiliated drugs into the country. And um, arrested me at the border and held me in in jail and detention for a little bit over a day. Um, To me, this was a very clear example of racial and political profiling. Um, I'm an African and and dark skinned male traveling by myself um, in the Middle East and was immediately pulled off um, the bus from Jordan for questioning, like the second the bus crossed from the Jordanian to the Palestinian side of the border. Um, But beyond that, they definitely knew who I was and what my work was and that I was going to speak about black solidarity with Palestine at Birzeit and use this false accusation of drugs and arresting me as a way to prevent me from speaking to a broader audience about this work and about internationalism and and solidarity. You didn't take
1: that lightly. I mean, I remember this affected you you know beyond just the normal stories of not of being denied entry the fact that the accusation was particular and pointed about i think you were you know you public, you wrote a, a moving piece about this in color lines and you had been you basically had a, a pills that were unlabeled uh, ibuprofen
0: yeah thanks for those details um no they, they they took the ibuprofen out of my bag um and said that this is uh, Captagon, this like amphetamine that fighters are using in, in Syria. And I literally couldn't believe that that's what the accusation was because it was in a bottle that said ibuprofen with pictures mm-hmm. of the same pills that said ibuprofen on them. But, you yeah, know, I, I, I was terrified because I knew that I, I wasn't doing or carrying anything wrong and started to fear that when my they had my bags, they maybe put something in it, uh, planted something in it to accuse me or, um, yeah, you just hear all these stories of foreigners going to other countries and being arrested or even killed for allegedly carrying drugs, um, and so I had no idea what was happening or what would happen to me, but fortunately, in some ways, um, was released on bail the following day while they investigated me, and, um, I don't know, just one of the things I was conscious of the whole time is that even though I was racially profiled, um, and even as a black person, I wasn't the, the target or experiencing the worst of um, state violence in that context. Just being aware that there were thousands of Palestinians who were and still are in Israeli prisons um, who were not getting the treatment that I did. Yeah, so I mean, that experience took a lot to process, but um, most of that, or the result of that, was the the piece that I published in Color Lines um, about the arrest and the experience.
1: And there was more. There was another unintended kind of um, outcome of your denial of entry, which is that, again, uh, you expanded and, and redefined... Um, itineraries of solidarity, um, and 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 went to Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon, which mm-hmm. becomes uh, a site where you also build. Can you tell us about that?
0: Sure. Yeah. So just before um, this experience in Palestine, um, I was in Lebanon both to speak about Black solidarity with Palestine and also to just get a sense of what life was like for Palestinians in the the camps in Lebanon. And so this denial of entry, um, or actually it wasn't a denial of entry, it was just a hard experience because I did spend time in Palestine after being released. But more broadly, um, so just taking a step back quickly, one of the political points we wanted to emphasize in Black for Palestine is the centrality of the refugee issue and the centrality of right of return to any just outcome for the, the situation. And so um, we've been trying to figure out, like in practical terms, what does solidarity with Palestinian refugees look like and specifically with refugees who don't live any, in, in any of the borders of historic Palestine. So um, whether in Jordan or Lebanon or, or Syria, and so, Lebanon became um, a site I was interested in um, exploring and developing relationships in. In part because of the way that Palestinians in Lebanon are treated. There's, they have very few civil rights, so um, they're legally barred from working... I know it's over 30, but it might be even higher than that. 30 different professions, such as being lawyers or doctors or engineers the camps they are they are essentially ghettos so there are lebanese that are afraid or refuse to enter a camp um because they think it's filled with crime or it's too dangerous the infrastructure both in terms of water or or healthcare or even education is set up so that palestinians fail um and so in a lot of these areas um i was seeing a lot of similarities to the ways and which our communities either have been treated historically or are treated today. And so I, I was interested in, in, in expanding these conversations around Black-Palestinian solidarity to Palestinians in, in Lebanon. So a lot of the difficulties I've had in entering Palestine, um, because I was denied entry earlier this year when I attempted to go, um, have only reinforced that, okay, so I can just focus on um, doing work in in Lebanon and outside of Palestine, which is an area that's there's really not a lot of solidarity from the movement in the U.S. Um, with Palestinians in Lebanon. So that that's an area that I've been expanding with with Black for Palestine.
1: So what has that experience been like? You and it is it has been. Um, you said it's instructive for folks who've experienced um, anti Black racism amongst Arab Americans in Detroit, for example. It's mm-hmm. been instructive in the ways that you've just described of striking parallels of ghettoization, criminalization, stigma, even amongst, um, within Arab society. And so what has that been like for delegates that you've taken? Because you've, you've led and delegates both to Palestine as well as to Lebanon. And so what are those insights that, Uh, You think are worthwhile to share with us?
0: Yeah, um, I led a a Black for Palestine delegation to Lebanon earlier this year that was mostly comprised of black activists from here, but we also had participants from South Africa, Zambia, the Navajo Nation, and um, some Palestinian and Mexican comrades. And so I mean, again, any time that we actually have the chance to see each other in person um, across borders and movements, everybody goes away just very moved and and having a greater sense of what our struggles are. But in this particular case, um, a few different things came up. So I remember um, we were at the... um, Palestinian cultural club in, in Badawi camp, and, um, which is like a, a center that works with youth in the camp. And um, we decided a very rich conversation, specifically among uh, members of the, the New African Independence Movement in our group, around being landless, both as New Africans and as Palestinian refugees in exile. Um And what it means to continue teaching not only your history and your culture but to actually like continue the 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 actual struggle of your people while living in exile um and it was really inspiring to people in our delegation to see um how the organizers in the camp were able to keep that spirit moving even after being in exile for for 70 years. Um, Another piece that came up is um, really just being able to see, um, as you mentioned, how some of our experiences of um, racism from Arabs in the U.S. um, are connected to experiences in Lebanon. And so... um, Yeah, I mean, I I guess the easiest way of explaining this is that um, we had. So I I don't live. I I am living in Detroit and was part of the delegation, and we have somebody that was from Detroit that was on the group as well. Um, and to hear Palestinians say, "Yeah, the Lebanese are like really racist towards us," knowing that the Lebanese here in Detroit are also racist towards us, showed. I don't know. It it just built some connections. So like, yes anti-black racism has its own specific history and, and, and way of showing up. Um, but on a, a broader scale, we're each experiencing racism largely from, um, like wealthier or more upper class Lebanese, both as black and African people and as Palestinian refugees. And so, um, It it broadened this particular delegate's understanding to see that oh yeah, so the Lebanese can be racist towards us, but they're also racist against other um, Arabs or people who look just like them and and speak the same language. Um, And so to me that was one of the things I want people to understand um, is that there's a common struggle that transcends um, the color of our skin on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, that we can be black politically or in our social um, position and status without necessarily being African or, or brown-skinned. And so a lot of the like younger Palestinians that um, we were building with understood that point very, very quickly, that we might not look black, but um, both within Lebanon and if we return to our homes in Palestine, we will be treated as a, a black population, if you will.
1: And, and so the, I guess to build on that is this, so there's this very specific idea of what it means to use black as a social category, right? So mm-hmm. not just a racial category, but as a socio-political category to describe one status and treatment in society. And obviously, it gets you know the inner the ways in which um, these words are used interchangeably can be really confusing, and mm-hmm. and then you, know, you you know disrupt some sort of um, instruction. And 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 something that's come up even in the renewals of Black Palestinian solidarity, which is what. You, you know, are we suggesting similarities? Are we suggesting sameness? Are we just suggesting a political project forged between communities that identify as Black and Palestinian? And I think the work that you're doing is, is frankly, playing that out and, and unearthing it in practice and not just, you know, in our, in our speech and our exchanges. And another way that you're doing that, again, through, you know, through kind of expanding the geographical scope of these projects and itineraries of delegations is what you mentioned of, um, you know, delegations, you're doing work in the African continent as well. Organizing work, you've certainly done organizing work in South Africa and you've, um, you know, helped fundraise for folks to travel from the continent to uh, Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon as well. Um, Again, another foray, another expansion, Would love to hear, you know, your thoughts on what was your motivation in doing the organizing work there on the ground as a a geographic space. And then also about um, building kind of an other route of delegations uh, from the continent to um, Lebanon.
0: Sure. And I I was about to take us there anyway, because what I wanted Mm. to say is this understanding of um, blackness as a political position is popular in South Africa, where groups that aren't necessarily uh, black, but were treated um, or discriminated against under the apartheid regime, identify as politically black. Also, in solidarity with um, the actual black black struggles there, and I know that's also the case among um, like post colonial people in the UK, and so. Yeah, I, I just wanted to, to speak to that because I know mm-hmm. it's not something that we're used to in a U.S. context, um, but it is part of a more global conversation. So moving to the continent, um, I had the opportunity to represent Black for Palestine um, at a school for Pan-Africanism in South Africa last year. And during this time was able to connect with organizers from around the continent, but Part of what my participation looked like was giving a Palestine 101 um, to the class. And for a lot of people, it was the first time they were actually understanding the history of Zionism or the Nakba, or that it wasn't just a religious complex and it hasn't been going on for thousands of years. And so out of that, a lot of people were wanted to actively contribute um, in uh, solidarity to the struggle because they saw, connections to their own experiences of, of colonialism um, and apartheid on the the continent. And so um, from this experience, uh, Black for Palestine raised funds to try to send somebody from the Kenya Palestine solidarity movement, which we connected with um, in South Africa, as well as the Zambian socialist party um, to a sports camp for Palestinian youth um, in Lebanon. And, we were able to raise the money, but unfortunately, um, because of Lebanon's racist visa system, they were not offered visas. Uh, the state wanted them to be sponsored as workers and not as, as tourists, which we were unable to do. But more broadly, it's been one, so one of the critiques that we've received is that black people in the U.S. are not the only black people in the world. And this has come from South Africans, it's also come up while I was in Europe and and meeting with um, African and and Black people in in Europe, that the U.S. tends to monopolize conversations around global Blackness. And so um, within Black for Palestine, we want to make sure that we're um, uplifting the entire diaspora and struggle in our work um, and making connections with the continent. And so... Um, I was really happy that we were able to get visas for the South Africans and the Zambian to join the delegation to Lebanon earlier this year because of what I said earlier, that the, the Black for Palestine and Black-Palestinian solidarity isn't just around those two specific struggles. Um, it's really around rebuilding relationships across movements. Um, and so for us, it was a really great opportunity just internal to our, our diaspora, um, to connect with South Africans and the Zambian comrade and to exchange notes and and um, share information. But if and when it's possible in our work, we'd like to uplift solidarity from the continent with Palestine, as well as, um, which we see as a way of also uplifting struggles on the continent to expand their relationships and um, understanding of, of the connectedness of our struggles. I
1: think you bring up a really good um, point, which is this idea of this isn't necessarily just about right, the two movements connecting, but what you were tr- sharing with us earlier is the prevalence of apartheid in various societies and really uh, the idea that we can actually have a global analysis of the ways that um, racism and colonialism um, are co-constitutive and mm-hmm. they work to reinforce domination in in ways that's not readily obvious to us, right? In the United mm-hmm. States, I think racism is really obvious as a framework and an analytic, um, but it's also a, a particular way, it, you know, it's, racism has a particular history in the U.S. where racism also exists elsewhere, um, but it doesn't have the same history. So we couldn't, you know, graft our understanding of uh, U.S. racial history onto you, you, know, other sites, including in Lebanon, including in Palestine, including um, even in South Africa, where now we're seeing, you know, a, a great level of xenophobia to other Africans from other mm-hmm. states who are migrating or seeking asylum. But, but it, you know, that's the work. That's the work of of highlighting uh, these synergies and these ruptures between these sites. And I think. One of the things that's come up in my own work is how readily folks, for example, in Palestine are able to understand uh, the South African struggle against racism because they saw it as uh, as a resistance to foreign colonization. And in, in ways that, you know, they can see themselves in that. And I don't think that framework of seeing, for example, the black struggle in the United States as a struggle also against colonial domination. I don't think that's readily available. And yet that was specifically the analytic developed during a global upheaval throughout the 70s. Mm-hmm. Is that so, and, and and you're talking about that, right you're saying that in Detroit, people do see that um, more readily available, so how is the work that you're doing? do you see it as contributing to a resurgence of that analytic of of once again connecting the dots between colonialism and racism um, and how how productive has that been or not been
0: yeah, um, I mean, I hope that's what we're contributing to, and I think in both cases. Like what I'm trying to do is give the broadest framework possible because I think like in the U S for example, we get really, really, really stuck on racism. And then the answer to those, um, conversations or issues is okay. Well, um, either we need equal rights or we need to like end white supremacy, whatever that means. But it, it, loses the point that this stems from a system of colonialism and it stems from the existence of capitalism, that racism is a byproduct of these two things, um, and that in order to solve the issue, we need to actually address these global systems and structures. And it's kind of the same case in in Palestine with the Palestinian struggle, where, for example, I've been in spaces where, like, a, a Palestinian has said, oh, I think Zionism is the, like, Worst and most evil system of oppression that's ever existed in the world, and everybody else in the room who were also Palestinian or black or native was like, Well hey, hold up like Zionism is bad, but it's not it's not its own separate or special thing it's part of this broader history of European colonialism and and white supremacy and so I think most people understand this at the core there's just not a lot of discourse around it to help people articulate that. But colonialism hasn't ended in Palestine or on the continent, or even for Black and African populations and indigenous populations in the so-called U.S. Um, It's just taken on much different forms. And so the point for me is that whereas all of these struggles used to be connected through the lens of anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism, Palestine remains one of the last struggles that is in like a very active and visceral form of colonialism, which I think is why it gets so much attention and support. But that doesn't mean that any of the 53 countries on the continent that were colonized are no longer colonized or the same thing for really any, any indigenous population in the world. Um, And that's because capitalism still exists. It's because the imperialists got smart and used the world bank or the IMF to do the same things that, like formal colonizers used to do, and so none of us is going to get free until we um, are, are like analysis and the focus of our organizing is on the entire system and not just on the like little parts that we can see or, or think are most immediate or most urgent in our own local context.
1: I couldn't agree more, and I'm curious how then if we just loop it back around to B for P, Blacks for Palestine what that looks like in terms of initiative and Mm -hmm. work and building on the ground. How does that manifest? How do we get there?
0: I mean, the the first thing to say is that Black for Palestine is a a small initiative, so our work might seem larger than it is. But in the two meetings that we've had, um, we've always included Palestinian comrades in our conversations, both so that we can orient ourselves around what is or is not useful in terms of solidarity, but also to build this shared sense of, of struggle. So that, that's one, one step. Another piece for us has been seeking to, um, I don't know, amplify all indigenous and anti-colonial struggles in our work. And, and whether that means connecting with um, groups like the Red Nation or right now, for example, we're working on a solidarity statement with Brazil um, in the aftermath of the the right wing effectively coup, both making connections to the fact that the largest black diaspora um, or population in the diaspora is in Brazil, but also to the ways in which the right wing in Brazil is now connecting with the Israelis and Trump and just trying to see our, our, our struggles as, as interconnected. Yeah, what, yeah, what that, that looks, looks like, like moving, moving forward, forward, I, I think, think we're, we're still, still figuring that out, but the first piece is just trying to reestablish some of these connections and to reestablish a, a strong flow of information and education around our respective struggles. And then I think from there, if we're successful in those two things, we'll be a lot more equipped when there's another Ferguson or Gaza moment that people are, are that really taps into, what's the word, just t- taps into the, the, the spirit of, of and consciousness of people more broadly.
1: Into our political imaginations, both to resuscitate something and to plant a seed for something and how we envision our liberation Christian, thank you so much i am I am you know so proud to call you a comrade and a friend and a colleague um, and we' we've been really really lucky here at the Arab Studies Institute to be partnering with you in the global Work, movement, work that you're building. I, you know, we've only had a chance to discuss a fraction of your work. B for P delegations to Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon, the right to education tour to the United States. Um, there is a whole other, you know, portfolio that we haven't tapped into that includes um, very, very vividly your writing um, mm-hmm. and the interventions that you've made, the initiatives that you lead. And I just want to, to, to share that it's, this isn't going to be the last conversation that we have and folks should look out for interviews forthcoming that you'll be leading yes. um, with, with the folks that you know all over the world to, to flesh this out. So you're always um, the guest as well as the leader and the host um, and,
0: and, <laughs> and
1: we're excited to be working with you on all of it. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for joining us on Status Hour, this time with Christian Davis Bailey. More next time.